0: Hello, and welcome back to Equity, a podcast about the business of startups, where we unpack the numbers and the nuance behind the headlines. My name is Alex, and before I introduce the crew, I'm going to say we are, we're live. We're live right now. We're doing this live. We haven't done a live show in a long time, but this year we're going to do a live show every two weeks. So Natasha, Marianne, hello, welcome. And uh, how much more effort did you put into your appearance today (laughs) than you usually do? I put on a shirt with sleeves in honor of this. Yes,
1: that's true. Not a tank top for once.
0: I know. This is effort. Natasha, how are you feeling?
2: I've, I Yeah, I'm the same boat. Like I'm not drinking coffee today, which is questionable, but I did brush my hair and I wore a shirt instead of a sweatshirt. So I think like I'm evening out <laughs> my pluses and minuses right now. Marianne, how are you feeling?
1: Yeah, about the same. I, I tried to like take off the pajama top for once. you know. We're doing great. <laughs> yeah,
0: this is, this is the most formal equity has been in some time. The pandemic really has brought us down to uh, slack or casual, maybe is kind of what we usually look like. Anyways, we're here with all of our friends. We're on a bunch of different platforms. If you are catching this on your podcast player, We'll tell you about it later on, but every two weeks we'll be live on Thursdays. And so with that, I think we can jump into the, the topics. Yeah, let's do it. Today, we we're talking about funding rounds from Moss, Alchemy and Cook's Ventures. Then we're going to talk about Peloton and the first quarter of 2022 and what we are seeing out there in the economy for tech companies. We're going to riff on pitch deck consultancy and how the venture capital game may not be entirely fair. And so we might need to make some changes to norms. And then we're going to talk about insure tech. And then at the end of this, we're going to take questions about whatever. So it should be an absolute blast. But to kick things off, Moss. Natasha, what's going on?
2: Moss is a really interesting startup. I've heard about them for a long time, but I haven't had the chance to write about them just due to bandwidth. So finally, the worlds collided and I was able to write. So Amira Yayawi founded Moss in 2017 to help students get access to scholarships. She spent her business really connecting them to capital pools and helping them unlock it. She wanted to like really focus on financial freedom and access in her startup. Moss raised a $40 million Series B at a $400 million valuation to evolve from just a marketplace that connects scholarships to students to actually being a bank made for students. And so I had to bring it up on the show because it fits into our theme of everything is a fintech. But this one feels a little bit more exciting.
0: So I have a question about this. It started off as a way to access scholarships, by my understanding, because the goal was to make it kind of just easier for students to graduate school without as much debt as they might otherwise have. What's the direct link between here, we're gonna help you get financial aid and here, we're also gonna be your bank. related, but there's still a bit of a jump there from one to the other.
2: They started the conversation with students about money. So I think Moss spent its first years doing what now I think is kind of like the cheesy route, which is like building using your community. So like it really <laughs> built up kind of helping its community access money. And now it's using the trust that it built to hold that money as well. I talked to Dina Shakir from Lux about this, and she was basically saying before they sat tangentially on the side of financial access and inclusion, they're clearly trying to be a more primary bank
1: now for students as a result. I'm curious as to the decision behind it? Like, were they hearing from these students? We wish you offered more financial services because I'm seeing more and more banks that are targeting very specific demographics yeah. out there. I think it felt natural
2: to evolve to this point. Connecting students to money is a business in and of itself. They charged a fee, but like a few years in they were able to grow their ambition. And so my read on it, Marianne, as I think you're kind of alluding to, is it had to be partially changing their ambition on how big of a company they wanted to be. In the story, she told me that their market cap is now 10 times higher than we were before. Mm -hmm. And that's because they're changing their business model. Before they used to make a fee after helping students access these scholarship dollars. And now it makes a fee through having a card. Interchange. Yeah, Yeah, through interchange. And so I I guess like I'm thinking like it's not coincidence that the startup is trying to find a way to like give more lifetime value to the students. It was like first serving just for like that
0: four years. One more point about this is that the attach rate if you get a student to join a bank is pretty long. I went to school in Chicago and we had banks that were local to like the campus. And I think it was Citibank was like the official banking partner which is a ridiculous thing for a university to have, but hey, what can you say? And so I ended up opening an account there and I still have that account and I'm old now. So like, I mean, you can end up within your student years forming these long-term relationships. And so for for Moss, I presume they want to get students early and then keep them. My question is, can you build a bank that works for kind of adult, adult life? And that also is attractive to students in this particular context. I don't know, but the lack of fees they're charging makes it sound at least appealing, though curious from a revenue perspective.
2: I feel like it makes sense from a fintech perspective, but I do see so much competition out there. Marianne, you're covering these targeted banks all the time. At a certain point, like there needs to be something that will differentiate them from Moss. I think they believe it's their community, but... Are there any other things that could
1: either help them make it or break it? Where are they in this process? Like, do they already have banking customers or is this something they're planning to launch?
2: They already have banking customers. Yeah. Over 100,000 students opened accounts with Moss in the first quarter of launch. And she estimates that the growth makes Moss the 10th largest neobank in the United States. Per Kind of impressive. Uh,
0: That explains why Tiger signed up 100K (laughs) in the first quarter. Sure, we'll put 40 million into that, apparently. That's the Series B. Not not?
1: bad, not bad at all. Yeah, so it seems like they definitely are onto something.
0: Okay, but a $400 million valuation is chump change in the crypto world where rounds are worth $400 million. So let's flip (laughs) the script and talk about Alchemy, which has brewed up a, a really interesting round, a $200 million Series C1. Marianne, what's going on here?
1: Yeah, so this is the third time I've covered alchemy in like a nine-month period. Damn. They were valued at $10.2 billion in this latest round. For some context, last April, they were valued at $505 million, almost 20 times increase in valuation in like a nine month period. So what do they do? Like, why are they so hot? In summary, they aim to be the de facto platform for developers to build on Web3, basically trying to do what for blockchain and Web3, what Amazon Web Services did for the internet. Three times growth in the number of teams building on their platform since they raised last October. They power almost every NFT marketplace out there, including OpenSea, which has also seen a massive jump in valuation and revenue. I was digging into like stories that you've written about them over the years and people
2: were comparing them to like the Microsoft of cryptocurrency. One of the investors who is participating in the round compared their growth trajectory to that of Microsoft, which to me was just a reminder that we still don't have normal benchmarks to compare a company to Alchemy to, which makes investors jobs more interesting, but also makes these valuations. I don't know, like still surprising in a way. There's no precedent for something like
1: Alchemy. It was founded in 2017 by Joe Lau and Nikhil Viswanathan, and they started out of their apartment. It ended up blowing up, and they're profitable.
0: Wait, well, nid, n- n- did we niche down to what type of profit? Because I just covered Uber and Lyft and I just got a bunch of adjusted EBITDA shoved in my face. So <laughs> Alex is yeah. hurt. He
1: has trust issues. <laughs> I, I,
0: yeah, I've well, been burned.
1: Good question. But you know, they are still a private company. They didn't get into super, super de- graphic detail. But um, Marianne,
0: don't give them space to be obfuscatory because we should demand more. If they're going cla- to claim profitability, they should back it up with telling you what it is. And Chime did this. They said they were... EBITDA profitable like a year and a half ago. And I asked, you know, adjusted EBITDA or real EBITDA and the real EBITDA, whatever. And they said real. So there's proof you can would you actually rather, share.
2: Would you rather though, Alex, like get profitability? Like, I guess, would you rather a company say decline to comment or would you rather them say profitable or not profitable?
0: Uh, I'll take profitable so I can make fun of them versus no comment. Like, why, why not be specific? If you're, if you're gonna, like, my car is so fast. How fast does it go? I won't tell you. Like, yeah, I mean, it's ridiculous. It's schoolyard bullshit. I, hey,
1: I I don't know if they would tell me, to be honest with you, because we really didn't drill down into it. But I will be happy to ask. And, you know, they've been fairly forthcoming so far. So I'll keep you posted.
0: So a couple of things about this. One, I think we're seeing the infrastructure play. If you're going to go support an industry, do you sell the picks and shovels or do you actually mine for gold? It's a classic kind of like who you're you investing in. So to see Alchemy get this much money, not a big surprise. Here's the question, though. I was reading through our our notes on this before we recorded, and they're seeing a lot of on-chain volume growth, right? They're helping power a lot of of the blockchain economy, which is great, and that's really cool. But a lot of that comes from OpenSea because OpenSea is an Alchemy customer, and OpenSea is also being valued on rising transaction volume. So are two companies getting The same points for one bit of work
1: yeah i mean it's it's a good point alex i mean they're telling us that they saw 105 billion dollars worth of annualized on-chain transactions so far that's more than double the 45 billion dollar figure it would be in october and you're right probably a a good amount of that's coming from open sea so the question then becomes is if the nft craze kind of dies down or goes away how much is that going to impact alchemy
0: and we're not just picking on crypto here. I mean, this was the question with Affirm and Peloton because Affirm's growth is partially predicated on Peloton's growth. And as we've seen from Peloton recently, growth can go away with a key partner. And so that you can become kind of over-leveraged on a single thing.
2: One question I continue to have with even a company like Alchemy, because even though it's like, I guess, supporting an OpenSea, Adobe, Dapper Labs, and CryptoPunks, some of like the household names, if you are even slightly tuned into crypto, is like, do startups graduate from them ever? Like, does it ever... Does it, does it have the ambition to be like actually the AWS of crypto or of blockchain? Or yeah. is it just
1: helping these like newer platforms? I know. I think they really want to be the AWS for this industry. Will they do it? I'm not sure. I knew things were like hot when I talked to them last year. I didn't quite expect a $10 billion valuation Less than a year later, though,
0: $10 billion pre because it's two hundy and then 10.2. So it's literally a flat ten belly billion pre-money valuation. They sold like essentially no stock for $200 million. I mean, that's like the best.
2: super impressive. I think before this, they were building an app called Down to Lunch. It was like this really like scrappy, like they didn't want to raise money. They were like working in their apartment and off of like cardboard boxes. And I think there was like a really interesting profile about them in the times about how these two founders like the same ones that are behind alchemy before this like started this consumer social app that ended up like rising to the top of the app store but then falling down it's kind of crazy to see them go from like helping people try and make plans during lunch to trying to power the entire
1: cryptocurrency (laughs) platform boom i love it though right yeah it doesn't work out you move on you don't give up and you know that's the kind of tenacity that leads to success. And, you know, and to your point, Alex, that infrastructure, the blockchain infrastructure is is pretty hot and we'll get into infrastructure more later in the show. Well,
0: it just goes to show that consumer social is really hard and building infrastructure is a little bit easier. Turns out selling to companies <laughs> slightly more consistent revenue. Let's just totally. squeeze in one more really quick funny round before we jump into themes. Cook's Venture. This was one of my favorites from the last week. I had never really heard of proprietary chickens before, but apparently <laughs> they're a big deal. And so let me back everyone into this. Uh, Jordan Crook, one of TechCrunch's best, covered a $50 million financing into Cook's Venture, and they had developed, and I quote, a proprietary pedigree line of chickens called the Pioneer. And Marianne, what I was surprised to learn is how particular feeding of chickens is in, the, in their kind of growth process. And so these, quote, Pioneer chickens, that's the brand name of the genetic line, this is a strange bit of English, are able to eat kind of a more diverse set of feed. And that's gonna hopefully unlock different farming rules and different farming applications in the U.S., I'm overall pretty enthused about this. I just, I'm not entirely sure how chickens are venture-backable, if that makes sense. Like th- that's the thing that I kind of got hung up on.
1: I think part of the reason they were able to track $50 million in debt financing is that it was founded by Blue Aprons founders. So there's some kind of a track record there, but agreed. I mean, I was fascinated by this story. I don't know a lot about chickens. It was interesting to learn um, a little bit more about chickens. Um, I thought it was... I, Things I thought, we never say on equity. Yeah. We don't say that enough. Jordan did a great cool. job of like breaking it down into explainable language and one of the things she said that chickens this way can handle a more diverse diet they're more heat resistant they get stronger yeah. immune systems this means that cooks can partner with farmers in areas that have extreme heat or regions with food shortages and I was like well now that's cool when you put it that way you can start to see some real life ways that this can be you know improve lives and stuff so yeah but i mean it's it's a
0: for-profit company right so like if they're gonna they're gonna develop a chicken that you can grow in the desert great but if they wanted to charge lots of money to license it the people who probably didn't have access to that before probably can't afford it and that's that's the tension here like it's cool that we have healthier chickens uh because as it turns out chicken is the most consumed meat in the us i didn't know that i thought it was beef actually but turns out it's flat wrong yeah so very very cool use of tech I'm, i'm skeptical on the business model front but as a as a carnivore even though i know that's bad for the environment um i like the idea of more tasty chickens you know who doesn't
2: As a vegetarian, I don't, but
0: (laughs) that was for you, Natasha. I was like,
2: (laughs) (laughs) thank you. Thank you. Um, no, I mean, I guess going back to like your Tam question, like because chickens are the most consumed meat, I guess. Yeah. There's the obvious impact there, but like if impossible meat and beyond meat are venture backable businesses, why wouldn't genetically engineered chickens not be, is there something specifically about a chicken being alive that makes it not venture backable?
0: So it's an ethics question.
2: Hard topics today on equity. I want to just
0: we have to move on a second. We're we're, we've gone over on these. But uh, beyond me, venture backable, Natasha says very good point. It actually went public. And from a high, looking at the chart here, roughly $235 a share, it's all the way down to 63 There we go. So, eh, you know, kind of, maybe, I don't know. But I, I, I'm always here for things that take technology and make the planet better. So this is one of those, huzzah, if it's just to make fancier chickens for us Whole Foods assholes, less excited by it. Let's move on and talk about uh, the, kind of the biggest thing that's been going on in the last couple of days, which is the the meltdown of Peloton. Yeah. I've been tracking this company for a long time and i'm a little bit surprised about where we ended up natasha can you just talk us through quickly about the ceo's exit and uh the layoffs you
2: just took both of the updates i was gonna give (laughs) <laughs>
0: no, well i'm just kidding <laughs> sorry
2: no, no it's okay um, i feel like it was such a it's such a classic equity to like transition with like transitioning with what you're going to t- what the transition person's going to say well you want to do a clean handoff <laughs> no, and then what fair. you do is you
0: eat the eat the food off the plate by accident and then hand them the plate and you're like here serve this
2: it's better it's than like peloton p- go like i feel like at least i know what to pick up Definitely.
0: (laughs) We've gotten better.
2: (laughs) Latest news with Peloton, we've talked about on the podcast for the past month um, and probably a lot more than that, is that they cut two thousand eight hundred jobs globally, which is about 20 percent of its corporate workforce. I feel like we haven't seen a layoff of this scale since maybe Airbnb in the beginning of the pandemic, which I think we felt it. It was really sad and really tough because you don't see those numbers too often. Beyond those layoffs, we also saw that John Foley, the founder and CEO of Peloton, is stepping down. That comes after, I believe, an activist investor called for him to step down. How do we feel
1: about a CEO leaving? Is that changing things for Peloton? Is this what they need? I think this is a a perfect example that just because you founded a company, a good company, that doesn't mean you're going to make
0: a really good CEO. I didn't
1: know about this when I read the the slide the deck um that this investor put out. I mean, yep.
0: Blackwells Capital. We'll put a ooh. link to that in the show notes if you haven't read it. Um Whew. read it and then be very glad you're not John Foley because yeah. it does not make him look look great. It's, it's like the world's flattering. worst dating profile, essentially.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's really bad. Like some of the quotes that they've quoted him as saying, you have to wonder like was he trying to be self-deprecating, but it really came back to bite him in the ass and oops
0: should i have said that Uh, i've been swearing so i think i think we've decided by accident that it's okay to swear we'll just we'll just bleep it later
1: one of the things that stood out and this goes back to what the actual comment that i had made in the document was that at the beginning of the pandemic they committed to a 20 year lease on a massive office space in New York City. I mean, this is a time when you everybody's like scaling back on real estate, wishing they could get out of either leases or you know things like that. And it, why would you commit to a 20 year lease? And I feel like they were just way overly ambitious about the demand for Peloton's products throughout the pandemic. I mean, for sure they saw a big surge it died off. I think they just they were just too ambitious.
2: I think the critique about the CEO is like twofold. On one side, we see people being like, of course, he didn't per- perfectly predict the end of COVID, the rise of COVID, the like Omicron, all of this. Like, how could he ever? And so those are people who are like pro John Foley. But the anti John Foley are kind of going on what you're saying, Marianne, of like that he made decisions beyond just upping production of bikes. And I think that's probably why he had to leave eventually. It's like the end to a pandemic story we will probably see a lot of other startups follow. Maybe not something as dramatic as Peloton, but just this idea of like losing discipline and kind of having to play catch up as a result.
0: If your company is enjoying a historic tailwind because everyone's at home and working from home, committing to a multi-decade expensive lease for an office seems strange. Like, huh, the boom that's helping you is what you're betting against with your spend? Like it just it doesn't line up to me at all unless you think, you know, the same way you did 20 years ago and then maybe it does. But I mean, it's a shocking oversight from a company that actually did very well in the pandemic. And as a Peloton user, big fan, rode mine last night and the night before. I'm on a 48 week streak. Huzzah. But I'll just say this. The software kind of sucks. It could be a lot better. It crashes a lot. You know, like, I mean, they, they 2,800 people, were 20% of their corporate staff hire two more developers to add some buttons to your software. You know, like, it's not a big ask. I, I, so to me, I see mismanagement not just at the accounting level, but also at the product level, if that makes sense.
2: I think I saw Kara Swisher talking about this on Twitter a little bit of like their new CEO being a signal that they're prepping for a potential acquisition because their new CEO, I think his name is Barry, the, the new CEO was CFO of Spotify. Oh, interesting. Okay, cool.
0: A company with famous gross margin issues.
2: Alex, you covered Uber and Lyft. How are they comparing and contrasting to the way we're seeing Peloton kind of take a hit in the public market?
0: Yeah. So if you recall, when the pandemic hit and lockdowns happened, Uber and Lyft fell off a cliff because everyone stayed home. We stopped taking rides and then Uber Eats actually did a pretty good job filling some of that revenue back in for Uber. But Lyft really just got punched because they do kind of one thing, which is moving people and no one moved. And so we've been tracking Uber and Lyft carefully because we care about what their results tell us about, not just the on demand economy, but generally about kind of out and about activity because that impacts travel startups and all sorts of things. So we care about the data points. um q4 is pretty good for both companies lyft did say that omicron had a material impact on its january results so if you're out there building a company and you're expecting that all of a sudden things are going to be a you know, completely hunky-dory not the case notably but i think we're seeing peloton fall apart faster than we're seeing lyft and uber kind of like uh show a strong recovery if you will and so the news seems to be i would say very gently net negative but not super harsh though i'll, I'll just say i just went and picked up lunch before we recorded this it's sitting Two feet from me, just smelling like pancakes and killing me. Um, uh, no one's wearing a mask. Everyone's inside of a restaurant. Everyone's eating. So to me, like maybe the Omicron surge did ping January results a little bit or ding them. But I, people have seemed to just kind of move on to the next dish, you know, part of their life. I don't know if that's good or not. Not kind of judging. But I'm just saying I think, uh, I think we've given up on pandemic restrictions so i guess you know buy airbnb stock or something it's not really sector based it's more stage based the changes so any company that's late staged they are seeing their multiples compressed because the markets have sold off but earlier stage startups are just raising like they did before so there seems to be more price discipline the more mature a company gets which is going to be strange for companies that are raising like a series A or series B at an incredibly high price and then have to kind of, you know, endure a more uh, mature multiple down the road. But, uh, you know, if you're an early stage investor, I don't think your competition's gone down much, especially with all the new funds. Right. I mean, how could it be?
2: I mean, yeah. I mean, speaking of early stage and just like the tensions we're seeing with new funds and so much money out there and so many people betting their careers on entering venture last week on Friday, I believe we saw tech Twitter kind of blow up about Lolita Taub, a really well-known investor charging $400 for a pitch deck review. She is both an investor and also a startup advisor all around a pretty vocal person for underrepresented founders as well. We've, all, I think we've all talked to her at some point. So I think that drama in and of itself is probably a conversation that is less interesting to everyone. But to me, I think what stood out is it struck a chord in so many different circles. People were mad about yes. small fund VC economics, ethics, underrepresented founders. There was so much there. It's it's and I want to walk through all of it with you guys right now because I think it's important to unpack and like I guess give people something to feel about it.
0: <laughs> uh, okay, so I'll start us off then. So traditionally speaking, founders would go to VCs or investors of pick a variety and say, "Hey, we're building this. We're raising this much. Do you want to buy in?" And then you kind of dicker around and get to a price point. Um, the money always flows one direction though, or flowed one direction. You went to an investor, they gave you money. That was the end of it. This though is a bit of a mixing between investing and kind of consulting services, Natasha. And that seemed to be the tension that led to a lot of people being um, irked or upset. Because is it just because some bad actors have taken advantage of people in the past? Or is it more that the idea of an advisor taking a fee from a startup is inherently bad?
1: I mean, I feel like that there's concern over a conflict of interest. And one VC that I know pretty well named Charlie O'Donnell, he kind of hit the nail on on the head, in my opinion, in one of his tweets. And what he was saying was some newer investors or VCs, it's harder for them to make money, right? I mean, it's different if you're a huge venture firm, but when you're just kind of starting out, you might need to do some kind of consulting. His criticisms are that A, maybe don't charge too much because founders too are starting out and struggling. And B, you cannot have as a client, someone that you would potentially invest in. It has to be separate or then you get into this whole issue of potential conflict of interest. And one other quick thing. Um, I did not realize that this is something that has actually been going on. Another very large investor charges $900 for a 15 minute consult. Can Um, we just
0: say who it is?
1: Yeah. Andrew Chen. Andrew C. Horowitz. Yeah. With A16Z. I mean, I, I nearly fell out of my chair when I saw the number. Like I was floored for a 30 minute session. It's almost $1,700. And then if you look at the page where he's offering this sold out, sold out, sold out, sold out. So people are paying for it. So I don't know. I think when you look at it, when you've got this huge venture firm and someone's charging that kind of money, you know, it's hard to feel good about that. I will say that he, he claims that he's giving that money to charity, but I'm going to share another data point right now. That's going to blow both of your
2: minds from the I'm one and so, only so Danny Crichton. He, yeah. he wrote a story in 2019, which was like, should you pay 50K for your pitch deck? Yes. Why the hell not? Founders pay. I think this is like me taking a surprisingly pro-charging founders, if they can afford it, take of like pitch decks can be the make or break of your company at some point. I think that's like a, probably a separate conversation than what we're, than the conflict of interest one we're having. Because I agree completely with it should be either pitch or or pay. But I think the idea that VCs um should not charge people for advice um is one that I think we also have definitely seen we've seen bigger numbers out there so I I feel like I guess conflicted those bigger numbers I think are coming from consultants agencies so that might be the difference but I think like the money you spent to get maybe a three million dollar check you you get you get it back in like in like minutes from having a better pitch deck so I'm wondering if that's the argument these people are giving yeah to them to themselves
0: I don't think you should be spending 50K on a pitch deck and pitch deck assistance if you're raising a seed round. But if you're raising a Series D, getting some outside help to make sure that you're hitting all the right marks and aren't making an obvious mistake does, to Natasha's point, pay for itself really, really quickly. But we're talking about early stage folks here. I mean, like if you're pinging, um, you know, an early stage investor you're probably raising a smaller amount of money because why else would you be talking to them? And so the the, the dollar amount is just much lower. And that's why I'm sympathetic to to her. But I, I was late to this conversation. So I was like, what's going on? And people just started sending me DMs kind of explaining it. And most of the views that I got were like, well, if you run a smaller fund, the fee base is very small and not everyone's gonna be an incredibly wealthy person already. And if you demand that they are, the people who can be investors is pretty constrained. So if you do want a more diverse investor pool, you're gonna to have to have probably a little bit more nuance, a little bit more flexibility at the earlier stages, provided there's no conflict of interest. So to me, this was kind of like six different arguments yes. that started somewhere, but weren't actually all about the thing that happened. It was more of a catalyst point to kick off the, the, the conversations. But I, I don't think Lily does a, is really in the wrong here at all. I, I don't have any beef with her whatsoever. And I, I, I'm glad that she started the conversation. I, I wish people had been slightly less uh, rude about it. I, I think also what,
1: what's offensive is that here is a, is a woman who um, is of Mexican descent. And she has is known to have worked really hard to try to help underrepresented founders. Um, and there was this huge debate on Twitter, lots of criticism. And, you know, and then I find out that here's another investor who's been doing a very similar thing for I don't know how long, but yet I haven't heard any uproars about that. So I think that, too, struck a chord with a lot of people. It, it's just something's wrong with this picture
2: yeah I, I kind of it, it's like kind of this really clear example of people being surprised by the expectations they hold of people like why are they treating a woman of color different from a male of color but still it's 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 like it's tough in that way and i think the point i think maybe this will be the last that we could talk about a little bit is like why it specifically i mean hurt some people coming from um it, because of the underrepresented founder dynamic out here should it, I actually disagree with the fact that I do think if you're raising a seed round paying money for pitch deck review makes probably more sense than a series d because you will only get to the series d if you get a seed um if you if you get people to see that vision that early on but I think if you're an underrepresented founder and you already are like so cash strapped um to to pay and then like kind of pay to play that's that's when it starts to get controversial and All pay right. to play i think is like the the end thing that everyone agreed on we should not have pay to play in vc period absolutely
0: yeah, or, or journalism i mean just to be super clear about that but the 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 so natasha i actually agree with you um but not 50k for your seed pitch deck like five seems pretty Something reasonable 50
1: 50k, much more 50K reasonable. is a lot, a lot of money, of money. yeah it's yeah, like I a pitch
0: <laughs> yeah i was only riffing on the danny point of him saying 50k why not that's that's classic danny
2: Danny, you're so right, wrong right now. Way. I hope he's
0: listening. <laughs> yeah, Danny, Danny. Uh, not only do we not miss you, but we're going to flame you whenever we can on the show because you can't defend yourself. <laughs> and that's totally fair. Um, I, I, I liked all this. Uh, Marianne, before we move on to the last thing, anything else you want to throw in here?
1: I think this debate... Was kind of important, and it's probably also important to note that I think people who are doing this are recognizing that they need to be more clear, I guess, about their motive or explain that they're not pay to play. Maybe that's one good thing that's come out of all this. Like people who are who are consulting are recognizing that that they need to be more explicit in in explaining the separation.
0: Yeah, I mean, here we are, three journalists getting together to demand more openness and clarity from (laughs) industry participants. Wow. (laughs) We, we just always surprise. surprise
2: our <laughs> listeners. It's crazy. I do love all. I love when Tech Twitter actually ends up in like being something worth talking about on this show because we don't always bring it up because it's not always interesting and usually it's kind of petty. So right. I, I'm sad that it, there was bullying, but I'm happy that there was a, I guess, takeaway.
0: But this goes back to the thing that I wrote in defense of drama, asking for more arguments in, in Tech Twitter because they can be clarified. And I think this did actually. Unlock a lot of stuff for people that may not have known what was going on, both pro and con. Again, I I didn't need to be rude. That was an unnecessarily uh, poor component of the overall conversation. But did we all learn something? Yes. Did an industry practice become less occluded? Yes. So you know drama. Let's have some more of it this year. Let's get in some Next fights. Next time, let's
2: just make it between two white dudes, and I will be much happier.
0: <laughs> Bring Danny back on the show. I mean, and I will deliver.
2: <laughs> let's end with insuretech. I mean, we haven't talked about the sector in a long time. Alex is is banging the soul drum. Is that the phrase about insuretech? What? Why do we care about it right now, Alex? You've written a ton about it in the past few weeks.
0: Yes. Well, so what happened was back in uh, 2019 and early 2020. A lot of companies were talking about raising lots of money for their insurance products. Metro Mile, Root, Hippo, Lemonade. These were companies that were growing quickly and were talking a really big game. The problem was I didn't know anything about insurance. I didn't know about loss ratios or loss adjustment expenses or how to build a book of insurance or anything that was going on. So... Essentially, what I had to do was go learn all that stuff. Then they went public, that whole collection of companies, and I was like, "Okay, great, I figured it out." They went public. Now what? And then they all got wrecked by the public markets. And so we we anticipated that venture capital interest would tail off. But Marianne, in the fintech world, did we see venture capital activity tail off last year?
1: <laughs> well, not at all. I mean, quite the opposite. This is a, an example of like public companies doing really poorly while funding still like really really flowing into a certain industry
0: like all of fintech like most of venture last year was amazing and just for example there's a startup called allen that we talked about on the blog the other day a french startup health insurance as a service also offers a platform just another example of a company in insurtech that's raising a lot of money and i bring it up because what we've seen is a real kind of dichotomization of the insurtech market because companies that were doing their own insurance underwriting exactly H- have struggled with some exceptions next insurance is doing pretty good we fox over in germany it seems that the companies that are doing more like providing services to the insurance industry are doing better and so i almost think we need to break insurtech into two parts
1: we're definitely seeing a lot more of the infra startups emerging and a lot of money going into them and i feel like the demand is there not just from the incumbents, the, the insurance companies that have been around for decades, but also from some of these newer ones that are still not quite there yet. So so rather than trying to build the technology themselves, they can work with these infrastructure providers and really help boost their offering. And then the infrastructure providers are like either raking in the dough. So it's I think it makes sense. I think it's a really
2: sharp take because it's similar to like ed tech or climate tech. Like these sectors are not all equal, depends on the business model and the founder and so much about who they're selling to. And so I think it's like, yeah, it's about time for insurtech to kind of drop off some of its maybe sad reputation from the public markets we've seen so far. (laughs) Alex, are there any startups that I guess are heading towards the public markets that will give us new data points of business models? Or is it still a ways away before we could see a new insure tech have to prove itself publicly?
0: Well, I think there's going to be companies that are of sufficient scale to go public in the insurance space who are not neo insurance providers, the exact category you're asking for. But there's also so much money sitting around that they don't have to go public. And why would you go public now if you just saw companies that could be construed as <laughs> not comps per se, but cousins get wrecked? Just for example, uh, Lemonade traded up to $172 a share, give or take, currently we're 30. And then Metro Mile, Root, and Hippo are all way down like the $1 to $2 per share range. So It's a massacre.
1: Did you say $1 to $2 per share
0: range? Yes. In fact, I'll just wow. I'll just be what? rude. and I'm Googling it. Yep, Hippo's That's... 2 bucks a share. And then root is I think like a dollar thirty, dollar 6 six.
2: Let's compare it to Snowflake.
0: <laughs> okay, so so to be clear, the, the per share value is only half of a market cap calculation, but it does go to show what's happened to these companies. Natasha, to your question, the zebra. I think they said they crossed a hundred $50 million annual run rate. And then I would say Agent Sync is the other one that I'm keeping an eye on. Um, they've raised, like, like Alchemy, they raised a zillion rounds in quick succession, lots of growth there. They're too small to go public still. They're probably in like the 15 million ARR range, give or take. But I think, you know, give them 18, 24 months. I don't see why they couldn't if they wanted to. So there's optimism there. But um, the saga of the neo-insurance providers was one of Icarus. And uh, they have melted their wings and crashed back to Earth.
2: I could think of no better metaphor, so I don't want to follow up on that. I mean, that's that's the takeaway, guys. This is why Insurtech is still relevant. It gives you metaphors like that.
0: (laughs) If you can bring up Greek mythology... On the podcast, what are we even doing? Okay, so we, uh, before we sign off though and say goodbye, we need to point out that we will be doing equity on hopping and kind of distributed everywhere every other week. So next week at this time, we'll be Found, our sister podcast with Jordan Kirk and Daryl Etherington talking to founders about what they've done and how they've done it. And then welcome back to Tell Jokes and Bring Up Icarus the, the week after that. And we'll trade back and forth. And I think we're doing this in perpetuity. So if you like watching us, use our faces and not just our voices to record the podcast you're welcome to drop by it's free of course and uh we're going to take questions here in just a minute but before we go marianne natasha last comments
2: this was fun it was fun yeah I, I'm, I'm like it just hit me now that you said that that i need to find new clothes to wear because this is like my go-to <laughs> look normal shirt so we'll prepare for that <laughs> I,
0: I thought it's actually we could go down a notch because now that we've done one of these <laughs> and we've shown up that we can wear normal clothing can we just go back to being comfortable again
2: not wrong Hair for equity merch. Actually, we have more people at backstage than usual. And I feel like if we get them on our side, we'll be unignored.
0: It it took us like three years to get our own Twitter account. The merch march is going to be quite a while. Anyways, guys, um, this has been equity live slash recording. We're coming to your ears Friday mornings. Of course, we'll be back on Monday and Wednesday and Friday of next week. Um, Hugs from us. We'll talk to you soon.